Hello, and welcome to episode five of season two of the Fashion Law Network podcast. On this episode, I'll be analyzing and discussing the bipartisan bill titled the Shop Safe Act, which was introduced on March 2nd of this year, and it's currently pending before the House. The full title of this bill is Stopping Harmful Offers on Platforms by Screening Against Fakes in E-Commerce Act of 2020, but it's been called the Shop Safe Act for short. Now, this act is really important, and it ties in with my previous two installments of this mini-series, since the rise of e-commerce has unfortunately also shown a major rise of counterfeit goods sold online. Then, towards the end of this episode, I'll discuss another related bill titled the Integrity, Notification, and Fairness in Online Retail Marketplaces for Consumers Act, or the Inform Consumers Act for short. This bill was introduced on March 10th of this year, and it would require online marketplaces to disclose certain verified information regarding high-volume third-party sellers of consumer products to inform consumers. So let's begin by discussing the Shop Safe Act first. The Shop Safe Act was introduced to amend the Trademark Act of 1946, or the Lanham Act, as many people call it, to provide for contributory liability for certain e-commerce platforms um, for use of a counterfeit mark by a third party on these kind of platforms. So the Lanham Act, or the Trademark Act of 1946, is a federal statute which governs trademark law and registration, maintenance, protection of trademarks used in or affecting interstate commerce. And the Lanham Act provides a federal cause of action for infringement of trademarks that are registered. It also provides for action of trademark dilution, unfair competition claims, unregistered trademark infringement, false advertising, among a few other claims. So since we have quite a large number of international listeners to this podcast who may not be familiar with the United States uh, legislative system, I will first briefly describe the pathway of how a bill can be enacted into law, since the Shop Safe Act is currently a bill. So first, in the U.S. Congress, you have a sponsor who's typically a senator or representative who introduces a bill or an amendment to a bill. There can be many other lawmakers who introduce a bill also, but the main sponsor is usually referred to as the primary sponsor. So for our purposes here, for the Shop Safe Act, the main sponsor or primary sponsor of this bill is Gerald Nadler. He's a Democratic congressman who represents New York's 10th Congressional District, which is one of the most probably diverse districts in this country, and he is currently in his 15th term in Congress, so obviously very experienced. He served since 1992. Then we also have five additional co-sponsors listed on this bill, which are Democratic Congressman Henry Johnson, and he represents Georgia's 4th Congressional District. Then we have another Democratic Congressman, Theodore Dutch, who represents Florida's 22nd Congressional District. 
And then we have three Republican congressmen slash women listed as co-sponsors. We have Doug Collins, who represents Georgia's 9th Congressional District, Ben Klein, who represents Virginia's 6th Congressional District, and Miss Martha Roby, who represents Alabama's 2nd Congressional District. Also, it's worth noting that Hank Johnson is the chairman of the Subcommittee on Courts of Intellectual Property and the Internet, and Martha Roby is a ranking member of the Subcommittee on Courts of Intellectual Property and the Internet, since obviously this act has to do with IP and the Internet. So the legislative process to have a bill enacted in the U.S., this is courtesy of the United States House of Representatives site, is first you start when a representative sponsors a bill. So in our case here, Gerald Nadler would have gotten the ball rolling here. He was the Democratic congressman. And so on March 2nd, 2020, he introduced the bill. The bill is then assigned to a committee for study. And if released by the committee, the bill is put on a calendar to be voted on, debated, or amended. Then, if the bill passes by a majority, which is 218 of the 435 votes, the bill would then move on to the Senate. And in the Senate, the bill is assigned to another committee if released, debated, and voted on by a majority, which is 51 of 100, would pass the bill. And then finally, there's a conference committee made of House and Senate members, which work out any kind of differences between the House and Senate versions of the bill. And then this resulting bill returns to the House and Senate for final approval. And then the government printing office prints the revised bill in a process they call enrolling. And then ultimately the president has 10 days to either sign or veto this enrolled bill. So in the grand scheme of things, we're obviously in the very early stages of this process with the uh, Shop Safe Act here, but it is important to keep a watch on this bill, see what happens next. There's a lot of these websites where you can input your information and you get um, tracking for this bill. So anytime it moves on to the next phase, you'll get an email alert um, so you can keep on top of it. And I will leave a link to this tracking feature in the episode notes of this episode. So let's get into the actual text of the bill. I'm going to read it word for word, and then I'll kind of just make my own comments throughout and try to break it down just so it's a little more easy to understand. So section one is just the title of the bill, which we already went over a few times. Then we move into section two, which is titled Contributory Liability for Electronic Commerce Platforms. And it states that Section 32 of the Act, entitled An Act to Provide for Registration and Protection of Trademarks Used in Commerce, they basically just um, delineate the Trademark Act of 1946. And then they say it's amended by inserting at the end the following. So this is what they're proposing to add to the end of the Trademark Act of 1946. So I'm quoting straight from the text of the bill here. An electronic commerce platform shall be contributorily liable for infringement by a third-party seller participating on the platform for use in commerce of a counterfeit mark in connection with the sale 
offering for sale, distribution, or advertising of goods that impl implicate health and safety, unless the following requirements are met. So now we have some language where an e-commerce platform site like Amazon or Walmart, for example, would be able to av potentially avoid liability. So we're going to keep going, and it states that third-party seller is available for service of process in the United States, of course. And then it goes on to say, before any alleged infringing act by a third-party seller, the platform demonstrates that the platform took each of the following steps to prevent such use on the platform. So now we get into these 10 steps that the bill delineates, which these online platform would have to take in order to avoid this potential liability. So we'll quickly go through each of these 10 items. So number one is verified through governmental identification and other reliable documentation, the identity, principal place of business, and contact information of the third-party seller. So Amazon or Walmart, for example, are going to have to have information about these third-party sellers that are selling on their sites. A lot of these third-party sellers, or at least they used to be, were kind of these fly-by-night anonymously run companies. So maybe that would help with um, stopping those kind of fly-by-night companies. Item two, required the third-party seller to verify and attest to the authenticity of goods on or in connection with which a registered mark is used. That's pretty self-explanatory here. Item three, imposed on a third-party seller a condition of participating on the platform contractual requirements that A, the third-party seller agrees not to use a counterfeit mark in connection with the sale, third-party seller consents to the jurisdiction of the U.S. courts. Um, so those are pretty obvious items here. Now let's move into step number four. Displayed conspicuously on the platform, the verified principal place of business, contact information, and identity of the third-party seller, country of origin, manufacturer of goods, and the location from which the goods will be shipped. So this is pretty interesting. It looks like the buyer will be able to really have a lot of information on the third-party seller, which in my experience, especially when I purchase items from Amazon, you it's a little hard to tell where exactly the goods will be shipped from and who the third-party seller is oftentimes. Step number five, requires each third-party seller to use images that the seller owns or has permission to use that accurately depict the actual goods offered for sale on the platform. Also very important, you want to make sure that the images reflect the item that's being sold. I know I've had one experience on Amazon where I purchased some patio furniture. I purchased them in white and I got a different set of patio furniture that came. It was black and a different style. So hopefully that would decrease instances like that. Step six implements at no cost to the registrant proactive technological measures for screening goods before displaying the goods to the public to prevent any third-party seller's use of a counterfeit mark in connection with the sale 
offering for sale or advertising goods on the platform. Item seven, implements at no cost to the registrant a program to expeditiously disable or remove from the platform a listing by any third-party seller that reasonably could be determined to have used a counterfeit mark in connection with, again, the sale, advertising of goods. Item number eight, terminated use of the platform by any third-party seller that has engaged in more than three instances of use of a counterfeit mark in connection with the sale, advertising of goods, etc. And item number nine, implements at no cost to the registrant technological measures for screening third-party sellers to ensure that sellers who have been terminated do not rejoin or remain on the platform under a different seller identity or alias. Now, I know in my research that Amazon has had a lot of issues with this, where they shut down a certain seller, and then a few days later, they just pop up under a different name. So we'll see if they'll be able to kind of... um, try to stop those fly-by-night sellers. Again, this all kind of has a central theme here. And then the last step, number 10, provides the information verified under clause one of each third-party seller that use a counterfeit mark in connection with the sale offering for sale advertising of goods on the platform to relevant law enforcement and upon request the registrant. So it seems like these third-party seller platforms would have to invest quite a bit of resources into these technological measures for screening third parties and goods. So it will impose a burden on them since the language of each of these steps states implements at no cost to the registrant. So this is going to be interesting to see how these third-party platforms will navigate that. Then we move into section B of the bill, where they define the meanings of a counterfeit mark, electronic commerce platform, third-party seller. And then the interesting item here is B item 3, which defines goods that implicate health and safety. So an e-commerce platform would be liable for selling goods, which implicate the health and safety, And the bill defines this term as goods, the use of which can lead to illness, disease, injury, serious adverse event, allergic reaction, or death if produced without compliance with all applicable federal, state, local health and safety regulations, and industry designated testing, safety, quality, certification, manufacturing, packaging, and labeling standards. Now, according to a press release, Doug Collins, who is one of the co-sponsors of this bill, stated, consumer lives are at risk because of dangerous counterfeit products that are flooding the online marketplace. Congress must create accountability to prevent these hazardous items from infiltrating the homes of millions of Americans. The Shop Safe Act would make families safer by requiring online sellers to help prevent the sale of counterfeit products to consumers. Now, when Collins says that consumer lives are at risk because of dangerous counterfeit items, he may be referring to some of the recently reported alleged counterfeit items, such as a lawsuit filed by Apple against an Amazon supplier a few years ago, which alleged iPhone chargers, which were counterfeit, 
and Apple then also warned consumers of counterfeit power adapters and batteries following this lawsuit. The Washington Post and CNN have recently reported of various counterfeit children's products online, such as car seats and strollers. And then, of course, there are alleged counterfeit items which are made of subpar materials, some containing harmful chemicals like lead. There's also a really interesting Netflix docuseries. I think it's from 2019. It's titled Broken, and it's all about the counterfeiting issues of cosmetics products. So as you can see, the danger of counterfeit products has really far-reaching implications. As I mentioned earlier, the problem is that there's so many of these anonymous fly-by-night websites which attempt to sell counterfeits, and unfortunately, when they do it on these third-party online platforms like Amazon, it gives them a sense of legitimacy. Also, as I discussed in episode one of this mini-series, the cost of listing an item as a third-party seller on Amazon is not overly high, so that doesn't help the cause here either. For example, in season one of this podcast series, episode two, which was titled All Things Hermes, I discuss a pretty well-known lawsuit which Hermes initiated a few years ago by going after some of these fly-by-night online counterfeit sellers. That lawsuit is Hermes International versus John Doe's. And as a side note, of course, um, lawsuits use John Doe when the plaintiff doesn't know how to name all the responsible parties, maybe because you don't know who they are exactly. And so plaintiffs do this to keep the statute of limitations from expiring. And naming a John Doe defendant just helps you ensure that all the responsible parties are held accountable. So in this lawsuit, Hermes was suing various websites, about 34 of them that they knew of at least, for trademark counterfeiting and infringement. These sites, as alleged by Hermes, were selling counterfeit Hermes bags and accessories under various online website names like HermesBagOutlet.net and HermesBirkinBags.org. In reading the complaint, Hermes alleges that defendants, which are all these various websites, have no affiliation, of course, with Hermes and have created and registered a large number of internet domain names, which intentionally incorporate the famous Hermes and Kelly names alongside other words like outlet or bag. This, of course, is not allowed. Then Hermes continues in the complaint to allege that on these websites, the defendants are attempting to sell a wide array of Hermes branded items like handbags, men's leather accessories, watches, among a few other items. And they all bear the federally registered Hermes trademarks and designs, but they're actually unauthorized counterfeits. Furthermore, according to Hermes, in order to further deceive and defraud customers, the defendants even go so far as to display their counterfeit products in the signature orange or maze boxes, and they even have counterfeit receipts and fraudulent documentation. So the judge in this case had entered multiple temporary restraining orders, which the defendants ignored. So the judge here ruled that the site sold items that infringe various products, including Birkin and Kelly bags, and Hermes got a judgment that included $100 million in damages against these websites. Now, in cases like these, the question then becomes, how can you collect on your judgment since so many of these sites are fly-by-night, run anonymously before they shut down and reappear under a different name days later sometimes? 
the judge ruled that the liquidated accounts of these websites held by PayPal would be tapped to award Ermesa damages, and the judge further ruled that internet service providers and search engines like Google and Yahoo must immediately stop providing services to the defendants and links to their sites. There have been a lot of lawsuits like this filed by various fashion houses over the years. Most read like this recent Burberry case titled Burberry Limited et al. versus various John Doe's. And in this case, there were many plaintiffs, which included Timberland, the North Face Apparel Corporation, Michael Kors, Burberry, Hermes International, Gianni Versace, and Louis Vuitton. Then, of course, we have the very recent case of the team-up uh, plaintiffs Valentino and Amazon versus Caitlin Pan, where they went after a third-party seller and, in addition, the independent website of Caitlin Pan, where they were selling allegedly counterfeit Valentino accessories. Now, this case is a little different because the plaintiffs were able to pinpoint the defendants here. And interestingly, today, I went on the Caitlin Pan website to look at their items, and I see that all the Valentino lookalike shoes have been removed, but there are an awful lot of Bottega Veneta-like items, the square toe-quilted slides and the famous pouch bag with that thick gold chain are offered for sale on their website. But as for the Amazon platform, it seems that the entire site has been entirely scrubbed of the Caitlin Pan products. Now, before I end this episode, I quickly wanted to discuss another relevant recently introduced bill titled Integrity, Notification, and Fairness in Online Retail Marketplaces for Consumers Act, also known as the Inform Consumers Act for short. And this was introduced on March 10th of this year, 2020, and this act would require online marketplaces to disclose certain verified information regarding high-volume third-party sellers. So Section 2 of this bill is titled Disclosure of Information by Online Marketplaces to Inform Consumers, and Part A says verification required. So any online marketplace would have to verify on an annual basis the identity of any high-volume third-party seller on the online marketplace by by requiring them to provide verified bank account information, government-issued photo identification for an individual representing this high-volume third-party seller, government-issued record verifying the individual or business contact information, business tax identification number. And then the text of the bill goes on to state that any online marketplace shall require a high-volume third-party seller on the marketplace to provide and shall disclose to consumers in a conspicuous manner the following information. So items like um, the full name of their business, their address, and I'm not going to go over every single line here, but I will provide a link to the bill in the episode notes if anybody would like to read it in full. The bill then goes on to provide a few exceptions to these requirements, some limitations, definitions of terms, among a few other sections, which I'm not going to go over in detail here. Now, interestingly, the Retail Industry Leaders Association, RILA, which is a U.S. trade association for leading retailers, announced its support for the Inform Consumers Act, and their senior executive vice president for public affairs, named Michael Hansen, stated on the RILA website, and I'm just going to quote him here, 
he states that online marketplaces make it easy for small and medium-sized businesses to connect with customers all over the world, but some have become a hotbed for unscrupulous actors to sell stolen and counterfeit goods. Retailers have seen a dramatic increase in organized retail crime in recent years, with career criminals targeting stores with alarming frequency and in many cases escalating levels of violence. This is because perpetrators, often organized and coordinated to target multiple retailers, are increasingly turning to online marketplaces to move large quantities of stolen merchandise. So I think it's going to be really interesting to keep track of these bills and see what happens here. And that concludes this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day. Bye.